we have people are looking for at us to represent them. We have a fiduciary duty to them. We do as attorneys when we're helping them. You do as agents. And you know, a lot of this is the largest purchase an individual is making. It means a lot to them that they're going to be spending $500,000. They'll never spend that again on anything else in their life, maybe. Mm-hmm. And something that you've done a thousand times as an agent or, you know, Joe agent has, but you always tell agents when I teach them, like, don't forget this. This single deal matters a lot to them. And it's the same thing on the legal side. These people are stressed out. They may be really scared or nervous. They're not sleeping at night because they're worried about stuff. And if they're a lawyer who is the person they're kind of grabbing onto to like, hey, help me get through this. And that's what we're there for. If we're not responsive to them, we're failing them. Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook, the podcast where we welcome business leaders, CEOs, and industry experts to discuss the rise to the top, building wealth, and real estate insights. Here's your host, Jeremy Spann. Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook. For more information on this podcast, you can go to myexperiencedrealtor.com. That's experience with an ED, myexperiencedrealtor.com. You can click on podcasts, and then you can download this episode, other episodes from all the different platforms that are on the website, along with you can even listen from the website. And of course, if you're looking to buy and sell real estate anywhere on the planet from the homepage, click find a trusted professional. And we will make sure you get connected with someone equally as good as the SPAN group in helping people deliver value. And today, you will be able to click on the Read More button with John Byers and Wayne Taylor. Welcome, John and Wayne. How's it going? Good. Thank you for having us. All right. I mean, I always get nervous when I got lawyers sitting in a room, you know, and I'm like, man, is this going to come with like an invoice or, you know, how does it... Absolutely. It is. Oh, it <laughs> is. You're on a reduced rate. It is. Okay, cut. <laughs> no, just kidding. So I, I start off every one of these with a little joke that my father-in-law said that I have to have a joke when I first started this show, and then now he wants me to stop doing jokes because I've intentionally done bad jokes, and so I have to continue the path of doing bad jokes. So I got one that I think is fitting for you guys. You ready for this? What do you call a lawyer with an IQ of 100? What? Your honor. <laughs> nice. You know, I like the dad jokes, and I have three little boys. So yeah. I, got, I brought one for my own. I'm going to watch them on your podcast. Oh, oh, oh let's yeah. hear it. Let's hear so, it. What you got? Well, I used to not really like facial hair, yeah. but it started to grow on me. <laughs> I'm going to use that one actually on my next one. Uh, I got one more today. Yeah. Grow. All right. I like that. I like that. If you had that. your scruffy look today, it would have been really good. If I had the what? You had the big scruff look. Oh, right? but, yeah. So I. So the last six weeks have been incredibly busy. You know, you were talking out there before we came in here with a significantly large size deal and having a beard like the man Wayne does over here is I have this habit of I'll, I'll, I'll start rubbing my chin to the point is it wears a bald spot <laughs> and it drives Lord nuts. She's like, yeah. you need to go shave your beard because you look like you got a skin disease right now <laughs> on your face with half your beard missing because you plucked it all out. So I had to shave and then I shaved and she goes, you need to grow your beard back. And I was like, Oh, cause you miss it. And she was like, no, you look fat. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, thanks honey. You know, I, I appreciate that. So she was like, no more drinking for you. And I was like, Whoa, those are like 
you know, divorce attorney words. Like, right. why would you say that? I mean, right. you, do you really want to tolerate me without drinking? And she goes like, no, I could still drink. Not you. So, <laughs> yeah. That's fair. It, fair yeah, enough. That's right? fair. So fair enough. So, all right. So today <laughs> we're going to talk about lawyers and title work. And uh, you guys happen to be lawyers and you happen to be in some title work. Now, I know that sounds like really, really exciting stuff like the O.J. Simpson trial and stuff. So tell me, what draws people into lawyers and title work since, I mean, it sounds like it's very action-packed, like, you know, the Marvel series? Well, so for me, it started when I was a kid. I loved real estate. I always tell this story. My grandmother was a realtor. She's an agent. Back in the day when your average, her average sale was twenty or $30,000, she would make the million-dollar club in the month. And she'd get her in the little picture in the magazine and all this stuff. I was really proud of her. I loved what she did. I loved going to see her and see the houses. So I always just, I think I've had that in my blood. Other people in my family have been in real estate. I went to law school. I was kind of like, you know what? Uh, actually, for, I should back up a second. I did get my license in Florida when I was living there. It was kind of as a associate. I had another kind of job where I did work that was very, it was contract work. It was very busy at times and very unbusy at times. But I met a lot of people. So I'm like, well, I should get my real estate license and can probably make something of all these relationships I'm forming. And it worked well, kept me busy or more steady year round. Uh, then I went to law school. I took all the real estate classes just because I liked it, did um, really well in the real estate finance and the real estate development. And I was looking for a job, as most law students are. And you're kind of like, well, what do I want to do? And somebody got me in touch with a gentleman who owns a multitude of title companies in about five different states. And him and I got on the phone for an hour because I was like, I don't know, title title sounds boring. <laughs> like, really? I mean, I, I've been an agent. And I'm like, that seems like the most boring part of it. And we talked for a long time. He said, I'm going to fly you down to Dallas. I want to meet you. I need an attorney in my office there. Somebody else got me in touch with a local title lawyer up where I was going to school. And I expressed my concerns to him. And he's like, no, man, let me tell you, you no deal's ever the same. You have so much different things going on. You get to help problem solve. You really do get to make a difference in trying to help people drive this engine that really helps drive our economy. So he's like, all right, I'll, I'll give it a fair shake. Came down to Dallas, spent a day with this man. And we had a good interview and he wanted to hire me. So that's where we ended up. I spent three years working for him at his title company. Then when I left there, I spent two years working at a, a large law firm or medium-sized law firm downtown. And then Wayne and I, about a year ago, started this. So what's your excuse, Wayne? <laughs> well, there goes our hour. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got started in real estate law right out of, well, I got started in law school right out of undergrad. So I went straight out of undergrad into law school. Coming out of law school, I worked at a boutique real estate firm in Arlington, and then we moved to Mansfield. And then, as John said, I moved from that boutique firm to the medium-sized firm in downtown Fort Worth, where I met John. And, you know, from there, we decided, you know, we could do what we were doing better, you know, on a smaller scale, but we could really focus on our clients and do a better job for our clients. So John and I left and we started Buyers and Taylor PLLC, 
which is the law firm arm of our operation. And it, you know, doing real estate law, the next logical step from what we were doing, because we were doing a lot of transactional work, the next logical step was to open a title company. So that's why we opened WTJB PLLC, which is the title arm of our operation. It still is under the DBA of Byers and Taylor, but you know we've got the law firm and we've got the title company, and they kind of work hand in hand. As the title company, you know we can't. We're an unbiased third party, right? We're, we're neutral. We can't do anything when we're in that operation. But outside of that, and the law firm arm, since it is a completely separate entity, we can help our clients. So agents have issues, their clients have issues. They can come to us, and we can help with those issues whether they're having those issues in a transaction that they're trying to close through our title office or another title office, they can still come to the law firm and we can help with those transactions. Because as you know, sometimes there are issues, whether they be contract issues or title issues or whatever that need to be resolved. And a lot of times you're going to have to have an attorney to resolve them. So it's just easier for us to have the title company and the law firm, because if a deal's closing through our title company, we're going to know about the problems a lot of times before the parties do. So we can kind of start thinking of a way to resolve those. And it just makes the transactions go much more smoothly than having to hire an outside third party that doesn't have any idea what was going on on the title side. So that's kind of how the two companies tie together. And that's kind of how we got started with those two. So did I just hear you correctly that when somebody wants to go buy real estate, it's not just completely smooth? Nothing ever goes <laughs> wrong? I mean, no pandemics, freezes, termination of contracts, any, anything else like that? I mean, it's just it's not just completely smooth? Nope. Surprisingly not. No. Surprisingly not. Now, I mean, I wouldn't know anything about that. I don't know how many clients I've sent you all in the last six months. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, that is very true. And we've seen, especially in the last 18 months— from the pandemic to crazy freezes like we had back in February, where it is just interesting. You know, I tell folks, I'm like, look, you know, like nobody, nobody likes to pay a lawyer, right? I don't know that anybody was like, oh, I'm so excited to pay my lawyer. But the, the reality is there, there is parts of this world that you need someone who is a subject matter expert. And unless you're buying a million different properties a year where you're just as savvy as savvy comes and you're only buying a property every once in a while, that gets outside of a scope of where your expertise is that you need to be able to lean onto somebody who is a paid professional that does not work for free and is able to give you that service, to give you that advisory capacity to make the best decision possible, right? Right. Yeah. And yeah. I'm sure that was a good plug for you lawyers to send out the, these, you know, billable hours Ab- and stuff. You're welcome. Welcome. Absolutely. Welcome. Yeah. We appreciate it. Yeah. Well, you know, you've known us long enough and you sent us yeah. enough clients that you know that we don't like to litigate. So if we yeah. can give the, the quick, easy answer and it's the right answer, that's the advice that we're going to give. In certain situations like the one that you guys were talking about earlier, that gentleman was very accommodating to the opposing party. And it just got to a point where litigation was the only option. Mm-hmm. So we're not the type of lawyers that want to file suit. I don't want to be in a courtroom if I don't have to be. If I can get something resolved quickly and easily and cheaply for my clients, that's what I'm going to do. But we also understand that sometimes you've got to file suit. And, you know, we're here for that as well. But especially in real estate transactions, suit just ties up the property. Nobody can do anything with it. 
So, you know, for those types of clients, just finding a quick, easy solution is, is usually the way to go. And I think you know that, and, and that's that's kind of the way that we tend to, to handle things. You know, I, I like to tell the clients that I paint a picture for you. This is your situation. No lawyer, any lawyer makes you a guarantee of what's going to happen. You better run because I can't predict a court or a judge, and you can't predict all the circumstances. You just don't see it all. But I try to take the information given to me and draw that picture for you, and you can decide. And I tell, I talk way more people out of litigation than I talk into it. I say, look, you're going to go through this process. Even if you're right, even if you're going to be able to win, even if you're going to be able to collect, it's going to be a process that is probably not enjoyable. And it's going to cost you money. You may or may not be able to recover it. I try to give them just as much of that information as we can and let them make the choice. And a lot of lawyers don't like to do that because a lot, we get a lot of clients that come from other attorneys where the attorney took a big retainer, did part of a work, and all of a sudden now they can't get a hold of them. And that's kind of been one of our keystones is that we're accessible. We talk to our clients. Uh, most of our clients have our cell phone numbers. If they need to speak to us, they can't. Yeah. But it's not just the law firm clients that we're accessible to. On the title side, you know, we're there every day. We're in the title office every day, both of us, from 8 to 5 and usually from 8 to 7 or 8. We're there. Agents can call if they have questions. We're happy to help them out. If their clients have questions, you know, our cell numbers are on our business cards. They're on the emails. They're everywhere. We're always accessible to real estate agents, their clients, as well as, you know, the law firm clients. So... Yeah. And I mean, and, and when I think of you guys, I mean, the first word that always comes to, to my mind is trust, right? I mean, we've had a good working relationship with you guys to going back to the previous firm that you were with. And, you know, and, and, and this is this is the hard part when you really, really like someone, you really, really trust someone is especially when you're very, very loyal. Right. So there's another organization that we're also very, very loyal to. And when you guys went to start your own firm, it, it was just like it was tearing the fibers of the inside of us because we were like, man, we, we love the both of them. We love, I mean, we trust the both of them. So we've tried to be very purposeful on making sure business goes to both because we trust both. Right. And, and that's what you want is you want someone that you trust. And that's like on this particular deal that we were talking about for coming in here is one party has a favorite title company. Another party has a favorite title company. And I said, look, I, the thing I like about, the one I would recommend, which is you guys, was you guys are very, as you just said, very impartial third party to look at something as an obligation to say, this is what it is, and this isn't what it isn't, right? And and it removes the complexity and the ambiguity from it, right? Right. And you guys are really good at doing that. As I, one of my favorite terms to use is, you know, making it simple is uh, Jeff Foxworthy, are you smarter than a fifth grader type? You know, so like when y'all were talking to Laura, you could talk high level. And then when you get me on the phone, you're like, hey, can you do Zoom? Because I've got like a dry erase board with some colors <laughs> to be able to explain what this means. Like, this is a picture. You cannot do this. And I'm like, well, there's a whole lot of pictures in the you cannot do this category. And you're like, good. It sounds like you're learning. So you <laughs> should paying attention. That's a good segue into things that are complicated, such as the current heated real estate market. I mean, this is this is just. I mean, look, Laura's been in this for uh, over twenty years. Ramon's been in it for over forty years, and they're both saying they never seen anything like this, right? I mean, it, it, 
I mean, what, what is kind of, we could just start at high level and see where the conversation goes, but what, what is y'all's perception of what is going on? Maybe not necessarily coast to coast, but here in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex real estate market, you guys as real estate professionals, real estate lawyers, what, what do y'all think is going on here? And it's, and I, and I leave that open to go any direction you want. <laughs> it's unprecedented, like you said. I mean, it simply boils down to there's just not enough supply. All of these corporations relocating, everyone moving from California to other states, and the the shortage, the building supply shortage. You know, there's just not enough supply. That's why we're seeing the prices go up. Plus, the people from California with the deep pockets, they sold a three two for one five, and they can buy a a three two for four hundred thousand dollars here. They're driving up the price. Um, but I think we're we're gonna see the market kind of change in the coming months. And John had mentioned earlier today that he spoke to someone else in the title industry and some of their agents are seeing stuff go for asking price. So there there haven't been bidding wars like we had been seeing the past six, eight months. So I think that's a sign that things may start to change. Now, it may be particular to those properties, mm-hmm. but you know, the past six, eight months, it didn't matter what was on the market. It was going for over asking. So. Yeah, it almost didn't matter what you asked. You would get more than it. I think now people are still pricing houses high because they're expecting to get that. But there's actually been a few price drops, and some people are starting to maybe cap out there or kind of slow it down a little bit. But I do think it's multiple things. We were talking outside there as well. There's a lot of cash where people are trying to figure out where to put it. I was talking to a woman a couple of weeks ago, and she's like, I have a lot of cash I'm sitting on. I got to get out of it. And I just want to go buy land. In Texas. So at this point, you refer her to my experience, realtor.com. That's experience with an ED. <laughs> Click on find a trusted professional. <laughs> yeah. I, I do give her Laura's number. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it, it is a case over. Yeah. You know, people are trying to buy up assets for trying to figure it out. But we also, we on top of that in Dallas, you have people moving here. Yeah. And from all over the country, like Wayne said, there's headquarters coming here. It's a little different. I was a realtor in Florida in the odds when property values were going up 25%. And there's a lot of investment, but people, you wondered if they were going to buy the house. A friend of mine, builder, was building condos. And it would take about 18 months to build the units. And most of the units were, when they would close because they're finally done, there'd be three sales because they had been sold three times during that period. It's great for the realtors. Mm-hmm. But... I think and a lot of that, not everybody was moving to Florida at that time. A lot of people were. It was growing, but it wasn't the same kind of movement that you have coming here to Dallas, where you have people with jobs and families and trying to get away from high-tax states or whatever other reasons for coming here. There's just a lot of it. From We had people in our office from New York. She's from Queens. She told me, she said, everybody from her neighborhood's moving here. So I think you'll continue to see some amount of gro- just you're going to see that amount of growth and it's going to cause a property to continue to be hopefully a you know a wise investment for everyone. Yeah, and and I've I know this will surprise you. I've got an opinion on what's going on on the crazy real estate market. Is you're right. I think you're starting to see a a, a little bit of not necessarily reversal, down market change, but it is starting to stagger a little bit. But, you know, so I, 
I'm a data geek, right? This is this is literally all I do. I see the world in ones and zeros. I track. So if you took DFW and you drew a line down the center of Dallas Fort Worth Airport, I track all the cells from to the west of that line going back week by week all the way to 2006. And I put that out on my weekly email. And I think that one of the reasons why it's starting to slow down and maybe not get as many multiple offers is one of the reasons is what you said earlier is the supply is diminishing so much that we're now starting to hit that portion of the supply that people don't want or is egregiously overpriced, right? Where you you get to a point where people are only willing to go so far, right? Right. And so I've been tracking like the weekly numbers of what's what is even for for sell, and this year we, as of last week when I was running the numbers, 2021 has been leading any other year all the way back to 20 or 2006 on the amount of houses sold and closed in West Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex, and now 2020 only because during this time last year there wasn't hardly anything because I carry up to this point of the year all the way back to six years right or 2006. But last year, naturally, not a lot was going on in June. But 2019 is starting to catch up with the numbers that we have this year. But it's mainly because there's there's nothing there's nothing to go buy. As a matter of fact, even the clients that we have that are trying to buy in the sub 350 range, I I, I just I, I my fear for folks that want to buy a house st- under 350 is in the next six to 12 months, it may virtually be impossible only because there is nothing to buy in that price point. And if you do, you're going to have to accept a lot of things about that particular property. Maybe what it's next to backs up to deferred maintenance or whichever else, you know, you got a, I don't know, pick farm right next to you that stinks or whatever else is. These are the things that we're seeing. And it's, and I feel not only for those buyers in those demographics, but of course, y'all know me being a Marine, work with a lot of veterans and a lot of active duty folks that get stationed out here at the base and they want to use a VA loan product that is not able to compete with anything that we have out there as it is just on a regular basis. And then now you want to buy in a price point where there is no inventory and you had started to talk about something that I think is the major cause of that is we're not building anything right now either because what's what's the point you can't build anything for I mean look lumber a year ago you could build a 200 square foot deck on your house and your wood would have cost you 900 now right. that lumber is going to cost you four grand imagine building a house with that same complexity right right I mean it's just not feasible no there's a lot of builders, and I've, I've actually helped probably, I'd say, a handful of clients who called me in the last two or three months, and they have under builder contracts for new construction. And they're telling me, they're like, we're supposed to close in a month, and they've only done, the, they've laid the foundation, or they haven't done anything. And sadly, at this point now, I'm like, well, he probably doesn't want to. And I'm like, let me see the contract. And sure enough, a lot of these contracts have some of these clauses that the builder mm-hmm. can unilaterally terminate or extend for two years or have these options, which some of them may not hold up in court, but these people don't have the money to go sue and fight the big builders on this. 
So that's kind of becoming, and the builders, it, you know, if they're not planning wisely, they're getting pinched because they decide to build a house and as their property, they're, they're having trouble predicting the costs for construction, and which makes it hard for them to do their contracts properly. Some of them are doing small escalators just based on material costs, but other ones are really getting in a bad way because they can't afford to build the house for them and they got to look at other options. It just kind of depends, you know, your single builders and your community builders and all of them are having their own battles in the industry and trying to figure out how to write this storm, so to speak. Yeah. So I'll throw out a key couple of key points here. So, you know, as much jokes aside, y'all, y'all know I'm a massive researcher and I, I spend the entire day on the phone bugging people and trying to learn more. Here's a couple of key points for the audience out there. Last week, I posted an article in Star-Telegram. Now, I knew a little bit more about this because the husband and wife in this situation, the husband is the ex-husband of my buddy's wife. So he had called me about this situation prior to this article coming out. And it was, hey, we're, we're building. We're supposed to be ready to move in this thing in 45 days. And what's funny is because they're lawyers, too, <laughs> and they missed this clause, a convenience clause or, or something or another that was in there. And now the builder is, like, terminating and relisting it, I believe. If I remember the article right, terminating relisting it for, like, $100,000 more than what they were under contract for. And, you know, and, of course, you know, the builder is coming back going, no, they were just actually really difficult to work with and blah, blah, blah. Maybe, maybe not. But so I post on a Facebook and had a lot of people comment on there and says, you know, well, it sounds like from the builder that the clients were real assholes. And I was like, let me help you with this situation is maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I don't know. But I do know how many clients have called me in the last two months because of the situation. I had one Marine, active duty Marine, building a house, supposed to be in there by this summer. He calls me and says, hey, the builder's like, hey, things are getting expensive, but, you know, I don't want to complicate you. I'll just reimburse your your earnest money, and I and I and I think his earnest money on this deal was like ten thousand dollars or something like that. I can't remember exactly. We'll just use ten thousand because Marine round number. Not really good accounting. And I told him, I said, just out of curiosity, I said, don't accept it, but just call him back and say, hey, I'd love to do that, but this is going to cause me a major inconvenience. Would you pay me double my earnest money? Just see what he says. He calls me back an hour later and said, the builder said he would do double their earnest money back. And I said, do not terminate that deal. He's wanting to do that because he wants to take it, put it back on the market so he could sell it for quite a bit more. If he sells it for a hundred grand more, it only cost him $10,000 because he paid you double your earnest money. The 10,000 original $10,000 earnest money was going towards the purchase price anyways. And he, and he was like, so what do I do? And I was like, you stick to your gut. And then that's when I told him, I said, Hey, if this thing starts to get too hinky, then I was going to point him in you guys' direction to say, Hey, listen, we need to, we need to keep this deal done. And this is just one of many occasions that's coming up. And you know what? And I do, I feel for the builder side of this, right? Because you're there to make a profit and you're trying to build these things, but there's also a right way to go about this thing, right? And that's all, you know, like our previous friend is like, I believe that if two people, two sides can communicate, you can work something out. But when one side starts giving the other side an ultimatum or just not responding or not wanting to participate, then that's unfortunate when guys like you got to come in here and get involved to basically help move the needle. So that's one example. Here's another example for folks is not only do we have a, a lumber problem, we have a concrete problem. Yeah. 
and we have a PVC problem. We got all kinds of supply chain problems because from Mark Shelton, one of our, my guests that's been on the show as a land developer, is even prior to the pandemic, in order to get materials like, let's call it PVC, which is created out of raisin, that let's say you're over in China, the second from the time you put the shovel into the ground to dig up the minerals in order to produce this, to get it produced and on a ship and through tariffs and all that other stuff to get to the build site was 18 months prior to the pandemic. From the time a shovel goes into the ground to the time it's delivered to the site. So what does that look like now with the pandemic, right? I mean, this is going to take years to straighten out just to get factories back online. Where we're even seeing places like DR Horton, who is one of the nation's largest builders, being limited to two pads a week to lay down, right? Wow. And to even, here's one for you that I put out an article uh, a couple of weeks ago in one, one of my weekly emails that goes out. Outside of Houston, a little area called Conroe. You all know about this one? Yeah. yeah. So DR Horton builds 124 homes, doesn't sell a single one, puts tenants in every single one of them, sells it to a REIT, right? And they made more money selling it with tenants in a property to a REIT than sell them as individual homes. So if these aren't indicators to folks of what is going on in the market, this is people need to really pay attention to this because things are not going to get much better because there's only two ways to change, in my opinion, the current the current situation, which is either build more homes, which we just addressed that that's not going to happen, at least for an affordable amount, or increase your supply or slow your demand. Right. Well, you're not going to be able to increase your supply right now naturally. So the only way would be to slow down demand, which one option would be is if the Fed started raising the interest rate. Right. Right. But even then, are the Feds going to do that? No. What? No. no. Now, Wayne, why? Why wouldn't elected <laughs> officials go raising interest rates right now? Just out of curiosity. They don't want to lose those votes. They don't want to lose votes. Right. You're telling me that people want to get reelected. So they're going to. So it doesn't solve the problem for the interim. So when I have folks call me and say, well, you know, we got another housing crisis like we have in 2008. And I go, well, first off, let me help correct you. It wasn't a housing crisis in 2008. It was actually a lending crisis. And we were giving money to folks that didn't qualify. And then we were putting terms on them that there was no way they were going to be able to pay these debts. Then what happened is that after 2008, we slowed and stopped building. And that's, in my opinion, one of the reasons that led to the shortage. We had a shortage prior to the pandemic, right? So everybody goes, oh, the pandemic caused a shortage. No, we had a shortage prior to the pandemic. Look at the trends where because of 2008, we stopped building. Now we had a shortage prior to the pandemic. Now you have the pandemic. Now you have people that didn't want a house that want a house, right? Because now they're like, oh, wait a minute. I, it turns out I don't want to live in 850 square feet apartment with 400 other apartments because of the pandemic changed buying behaviors. I want to go buy and I can buy at 3.5%. So you had more buyers enter the market, adding an increased demand that now made it even more challenging, where now there's becoming fights over these houses, especially in situations like multiple offers. Let's talk about multiple offers. (laughs) So you guys, I know we've come to you for some advice here lately, because what do you do when you put a house on the market and you price it? accordingly and in 48 hours you get 35 offers well your agent's got a lot of work to do (laughs) man you're telling laura (laughs) 
Notice there was no me in that. I'm pretty sure we got an email from Laura asking what to do when this when this first started. Yeah. And I said, what did we tell? We said, put a spreadsheet together and then present them as best you can. Yeah. All of them. Because we do (laughs) have an obligation under the laws of the state of Texas to present every offer that comes in. But when you're inundated with 35 offers, by the way, that is not an exaggeration. It was 35 offers and 48 hours and, you know, just kind of like, you know, your comment, you're like, well, you know, lawyers, I mean, come on, all real estate agents know what they're doing, right? Absolutely. <laughs> all the ones we, that close with us. We love them <laughs> you know, as I like to, you know, as I like to joke around is, is when you find a good agent, hold on to them like a unicorn, because when you realize that the barriers of entry into this industry is to take a hundred question test that's multiple guess and you only got to get 70 right, which you had a 25% chance of getting every question right. And that person is going to, who's never bought or sold their own personal homes ever in their life, they're going to represent you. And 97% of homeowners, I think, is the largest transaction they'll ever make in their life. And this person is going to tell you, oh, this is what you should do. Like even out of those 35 contracts, now, for the audience, I mean, I don't personally know because I wasn't reading through it because that's not my wheelhouse as part of the team, right? <laughs> my part is to like bother guys like Wayne, Wayne and John here, you know, the, the wrong contracts, missing parts, no, I mean, missing addendums. I mean, it was just, so now she's having to go through 35, which I think she said it was like less, le, I don't want to exaggerate, but it was like less than 10 of them actually had the most of what they needed in order to be a valid contract. So then that adds time to be able to sit there and look at the client. And that's what she did. You know, she had the spreadsheet, bring it in, given the highlights, right? To be able to go, these are your, your, these are your best option. Cause the highest offer is not always the best offer. Right. 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 Talk about that. So, and we've seen a lot of this lately, is a lot of the agents are, well, not the agents, the buyers are paying for title policies because people don't really think about that at the end of the day. But depending on the price of the house, it could be a substantial amount of money. So we're seeing stuff like that on the contracts, non-refundable earnest money that does not go towards the purchase price. But we're seeing some of that. Agents are getting very, very crafty and they have to be. Like you said, with with 30 contracts, you're going to have to be different. You're going to have to stand out. And we always like to help them, too. Agents will call me up, like, what can we do to get this under under contract? I was like, hey, these are some of the tricks I share. We have language we send out. The most recent one, I guess, to give away a secret that I'm starting to see is they're no longer prorating taxes. And that's kind of a win-win for both parties because the seller, they get all of our sales at this point right now the seller would basically give the buyer credit for half a year's taxes. And so you're writing that down. You're going to use that, aren't you? Well, I'm not. I'm going to tell Laura. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so the seller is having to give away, you know, maybe five, six, seven thousand dollars $7,000 as a credit to the buyer. Well, the buyer could say, hey, I don't need that credit right now. But, but it's not coming out of a buyer's pocket today. It comes out of her pocket come when taxes are due uh, in January. Well, I think they're due at the end of January. Mm-hmm. So buyers have a little bit of time to kind of find that money. It doesn't mess with their qualifications for the loan unless for possibly for escrowing. Um, there can be a few other varieties going on. But it is a way to kind of make your offer stand out in a substantial way that doesn't hit you today. You know, 
we're uh, so many people in America. We're just let's push that problem down and make it tomorrow's problem. And it, it kind of works. And it's setting some people apart also because now everybody's paying for title. Everybody's saying, oh, we'll pay all your closing costs. But non-refundable deposits become ri- – that doesn't go towards the purchase price. We're seeing those in the two, three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000. They're saying, sign this contract with me. I will write you this check. And you get to keep it no matter what happens. And if I do buy your house, it doesn't even count towards the sales price. Well, we had one last week that was $10,000. Not non-refundable. Come through. On what? Yeah. What roughly r- r- price point? Uh, Seven hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, roughly. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's really very interesting, especially you know in Texas we don't have you know state income tax, but we do have high property taxes. So roughly call it three percent is you know can be a very sizable chunk. Like we had a deal on a house up in the northern part. We'll just call northern part of Fort Worth. Whereas multiple offers, they came in significantly over within a waiver of appraisal. They gave her a 30-day lease back, so for free. So she got to stay, figure out where to go next. Paid for the movers and paid title, waived home warranty, and paid their own agent's portion of the commission. Y'all remember this deal? I've I, I've seen a few of these. Yeah, we did that one through y'all's through y'all's office. If not, then my bad. We shouldn't have through your office. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. Now, uh, or maybe the title company changed because they were paying title and they wanted that, or, yeah. or whichever. But but I mean, you were talking about a difference of when it was all said and done of about sixty five thousand dollars. I think is what it was on a $500,000 house. That's over 10%. Yeah. And it's really, this is the importance of you and us yeah. because for the agents and when the agents call me up, they're like, I need to put this language in there. I'm like, I explained it to them. I'm like, I'm going to help you draft the language, but you need to know what's going on, what you're doing, because you have to go explain it to the other agent to make your offer stand out. And if you just write some, if you get some lawyer language and throw it in there and the other agent doesn't understand it, they get scared and just toss it aside probably. Mm-hmm or have trouble presenting it. So I tell the agents, I'm like, you you need to learn this, you need to know what you're doing, and then you need to be able to present that to the other side. Where we come in, and for all the agents out there, you know, but we're happy to help, don't write these pr- special provisions on your own. I mean, you know, somebody sits there and writes, buyer will pay all agents' commission. Well, what if all of a sudden that agent's commission becomes 12%? And they assume it's a 2 or 3%, but commissions are not set in stone. And it could be, it could be any amount. It could be changed, and you just create a legal obstacle. So, you know, when we write that language, we put a cap in there to protect up to a certain amount, so that, that those kind of things don't come along. Yeah, I we get a lot of contracts being a title company where you know agents do write in a lot of their own stuff, and we're like, thank God that didn't happen. But we also occasionally get the one where the agents wrote in stuff and something does happen, and that can create a obstacle. So this is this is this, this brings me back to who you guys are and what you guys are, right? I mean, y'all are professional real estate practicing attorneys, and the importance that I I I, I tell folks is to have a professional is like Laura calls you guys. Laura has a law degree. Laura's been doing real estate for the last twenty years, but she has not been doing title work for the last twenty years. And she still calls you. So when you got a lawyer calling other lawyers, I mean that 
Well, in the detective's office, we call that clue, right? <laughs> it's it's the, the, the importance of this because especially now, now I, I'm really playing dangerously talking about contracts or anything else because y'all know I haven't built one of those out since whenever, and they're filling the blank. But I was like, but they don't have crayons. Uh, <laughs> but but when, Laura, when the new set of legislation came out, there was some contract stuff changed, right? Unless you're sitting at, you know, it's kind of like when, when someone calls me and says, hey, what's the analysis on this project that we're working on? And I'm like, I'm working on 10 of them. If you want to rely on me not looking at my computer to validate things that are changing on a daily basis, then I'm going to give you some information that might not be completely accurate, right? I, I need to be looking at this because yeah. this contract stuff is new. And now that it's come in, it's also the one Laura was talking about was like the gas lease stuff yes. and all this other stuff that is, which really I kind of laugh because I'm like, hey, isn't Trek full of lawyers that write this stuff? And then did they realize what they wrote? <laughs> because now this new system has got, if I understand from what Laura was explaining to me, which, look, in my defense, I may or may not have been paying attention or listening. But she said there is potential loopholes in this new set of things leading all the way up to right before closing, right? Did I understand her right on, on if somebody didn't provide some sort of something based on leases or security equipment or, or I'm trying to remember. I yeah. should, they have to provide that information in the contract. They have to check if it's, you know, whenever we get these new contract changes, yeah. a lot of agents have trouble understanding it. And Laura, being the lawyer that she is, actually, I was really impressed because she picked that out and nobody had really been talking about the mineral leases that much. Yeah. But if you're aware of mineral leases, you're supposed to provide them to the buyer in a very timely manner. And so actually I actually had another deal where they had signed the contract and they were in a hurry to get it all done and it was all complete. The agent comes to me, he's like, well, we checked in here, but there's mineral leases and we're supposed to provide them. Well, there are no mineral leases that the seller knows of. I'm like, well, okay, we just need to do an amendment. We'll do that. Well, the buyer's agent was giving heck about that amendment. And he's like, well, we're not signing that. I'm like, well, you've kind of, they've, didn't understand because they thought that that meant we will provide them if they're there. But no, that says we're here and we're going, we're obligated to provide them. Hmm. And it was kind of one of, you know, when you get these new contracts and new terms, we get very busy trying to help uh, agents understand them. And, you know, a lot of times agents will, you know, we know the big highlights right away and we study those, we think about them, we talk to people about them. This is what's coming. A lot of times when an agent calls me and has a peculiar question, I'm not afraid. I'll go, give me one second. I'm pulling up on my computer. I'm reading that paragraph along with them because I'm like, what Mm -hmm. does this actually say when it gets into the real world of being active? And how are people interpreting that? And, you know, it's does it say what they wanted it to say? And Trek tries really hard to get them all set up that way. And, you know, sometimes they have to make amendments or fix things down the road. Yeah. And and, and it's the (laughs) – so – Prime, prime example of how important contracts are, right, is, as you know, I own quite a few investment properties, and I have some younger tenants that are in some of them. And, and actually, I've got this kid. Yeah, I, I, I really, I won't, I won't name him. He's great. He's actually a great tenant, great kid. And I have all my tenants pay through an app called Cozy, right? So they get it registered on there. Cozy collects it, deposits it for me. So generally, I don't even check until about the third of the month to see who's paid or not because i got quite a few investment properties. And, and then when I haven't, you know, I just take a screenshot of it and say, hey, 
guys, you know, don't forget, rent's due by midnight. And but in this particular case, what ended up happening is, is he they were they were on a two year lease, and he didn't reset his payment system to continue when it started over June first. So the next day, I was like, hey guys, you know, rent's late, and he sent me an individual message. And just said, hey, I don't know what happened to the system. It shut off, but I'm not paying the late fee. And and I, as you guys know me, you know, being a Marine, I I, I take being told something really, really well. <laughs> yeah. And so I think my response was something along the lines of, well, that's cute. And I screenshotted the part of his lease that says, if not paid by midnight on the 3rd, this is the late fee kind of thing. And then I followed up with a response of, you know, I would probably respond better with a request to not pay the late fee. And then he jumps back in immediately and says, hey, I did not realize what my text sounded like. I'm actually interning this summer for a property management company and could realize how much tenants could be a pain in the ass. He goes, I'm politely requesting it. Did not mean it. He goes, I was just, I, I, I sent it too fast. And I said, nah, man, you're good. You're, you're a great tenant. But it was just to the point of, and I said, hey, really, I'm not trying to be a, being asked with the way I responded to you is because I do care for my tenants, right? I mean, right. I, I go above and beyond as a landlord for my tenants. And I said, but look, man, you're, you're, you're 21. And what you need to realize is whatever you slap your signature on, especially in Texas, where it's very landlord friendly, you need to understand what you're signing, even to the point of when I have my new tenants come in. And generally, the new tenants start June 1st. And so in the beginning of May, I'll say, hey, let's get on a Zoom call. Let's go through the lease line item by line item. I want you guys to understand what y'all signed six months ago. And if there's any questions, any ambiguity, let's go over this. Because I feel like if you set expectations and people understand things, and I tell them like, hey, listen, here's the lease, everything else before you sign it. Let me know if you have any questions. Because as far as I'm concerned, the second you guys have signed that, that money is mine, whether you occupy this thing or not, because you signed a contract. And, and so, and what I've noticed is it's helped me build a better rapport with my tenants. And it's been really good because most of them are very young, 20, 21, 22 in a particular area. I have these investments and, and they've come back and I'm like, I want you guys to learn, you know, in business, when you sign something, that's, that's pretty solid. Now I'm telling this to lawyers, right? I mean, you know, y'all tell me. Yeah. I just hope that you have personal guarantors on those leases. Maybe some of those parents. <laughs> Sounds like I need to call you. <laughs> <laughs> Any of the parents listening to this, I'm going to cut that segment out. Uh, so, uh, but, but yeah, no, I mean, it's just, it, it really is important for people to understand, like especially first-time homebuyers, right, what they're getting into, right? I mean, you're going to own your – let me rephrase that. You're going to be a part of something because you really don't truly ever own it. You owe the bank. The bank really owns it. You're just borrowing it from the bank. And then after you pay the bank off, well, if people go, well, this is mine, I'm like, try not paying your taxes and see what happens, right? So there's always a but right, in there, right? And, and so that's where I think a lot of people get very confused on what it is to go buy something. And that's why I, I encourage folks, like recently, my friend Brian, right, we're doing this deal and I was like, I was like, hey, let me turn you on to John. I trust John. And then 
he was like, wow, he's really good. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, I, would you think I was going to do send you somebody bad? So, <laughs> yeah. But it is important for folks to do that, is, is to reach out to a trusted, licensed professional to be able to represent their interests, right? Right. Yeah. For both, you got... Well, you know, I was just going to say, whether it be us or or a licensed realtor like mm-hmm. you and, and everybody else at the SPAN group, it would be really nice if agents went line by line like you do on those leases mm-hmm. and make sure that your clients know what they're signing. Because I almost guarantee that nobody goes line by line on those <laughs> TREC contracts. No. You know, they'll hit the high points, purchase price and all that sort of thing. You know, if there's going to be minerals reserved or something like that. But there's a lot in there. That means a whole lot that nobody knows is in there or the clients don't know is in there. So it'd be really nice if if some agents did that. And I know the really good ones do. Yeah. I, I know you are. Well, I know Laura. Well, make yeah. sure. Fair, that fair the, statement. That the, that, <laughs> that the clients know what they're getting into. But a lot of them don't. And, and it's it's obvious when they come through the office. It's obvious to know, to see which agents are are doing what they should be doing. So that, that's, a good, that's a good segue into understanding what you have and what you're doing, right? So I'm a seller, and I'm responsible for the title portion of this, right? So I come to you and say, hey, I need this title work done because somebody wants to come in and buy my house. What should I know as a seller when it comes to title work that's really important that you, that you quickly realize a lot of sellers don't maybe know? What would you say are some of the top highlights of that? One of the, I would say, the most common issue, it seems to even creep into the classes that we teach realtors, and it tends to be, do you really own the house? Not how you were saying a little bit ago, but how are they truly vested in title and ownership? And a lot of situations we run into are, it's a widow or a widower, and their spouse passed away a few years ago. And we're like, more of a community property state, I own the house. And sometimes our lawyer made the mistake, or I'm sorry, our realtor made the mistake of repeating that to them and affirming that opinion and giving a legal opinion to ownership, which is one of those things I tell you not to do. Um, <laughs> you tell me a lot of, no, you can't do that. Yeah. That, well, <laughs> that's a real common one. And people make that. And then they find out, well, husband had some girl. He was off in the Marines and he had a, another kid who he hasn't seen in 20 years. So they don't really matter. Well, that's. He's not talking about me, by the way. No, I'm not talking about. <laughs> <laughs> If they, if they are talking about, you know, if they leave a will in the state of Texas, that mm-hmm. creates complications. So I would say that's one of the most common seller issues. The other one that kind of pops up a lot, and, you know, I was trying to help somebody else within our our company the other day was one is there was an AJ placed on a property. And so, it's an abstract of judgment, okay. which means actually in this case, wife and husband got divorced. Wife went to California. Wife filed some kind of petition in California. I looks like he didn't show up. So she got a judgment on him called a default judgment. Then she came back and had that filed here in the property records in Texas. So now husband is trying to um, refinance his homestead property. And Texas has a lot of protections for homestead properties. And most judgment liens cannot apply to your homestead properties. There's ways to get them removed. And people don't always know that or know how to do it. And that's one of the things that we help people with many times and there's one of the great things is there's some really small easy things that we can do wearing our title company hats 
where we can give them a really quick answer and you know it's usually the right answer we can take it to a certain underwriter who we know we work with 10 different underwriters so we have a lot of options there's a lot of things that we can help them do ahead of time that aren't even major ordeals to go over we had another client he had his wife had died sadly and they had five children but two of them were minors all the children belonged to both of them no i think she i'm sorry she did have some children of her own what happened though minor came into ownership of some property and he had he had a legal aid that he had bought with his firm that he worked for and he was calling the legal aid lawyers and like well you got to do a guardianship that it's not actually wholly accurate. There is a bypass that the legislator passed for just this type of situation. We were able to quickly get this done for him in under 60 days. He didn't have to go through a guardianship. He didn't have to go through. It was much cheaper and more efficient to do what we were able to help him with. So a lot of people just, I don't think they know the problems until we get what we call that title commitment from our office. And then our escrow officers or us can help go through that commitment and show them the problems that may come up and how what's the best way to tackle that problem. Another one that comes to my mind too that sellers should probably get familiar with is their survey. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like a pregnant pause on that one. Like where do we even go with this one, right? On the complications that we run into. Yeah, it's and you guys know you when you guys go on your listing appointment, you're like, hey, do you have your survey? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well we're gonna sign this contract. It's gonna save it. You're gonna deliver it. Okay, no problem. I'll find that. And you know, then they call you when it's supposed to be delivered, and they couldn't find it. And one of the common things there is because you are allowed to use an old survey with an affidavit according to the contract. So that seller needs to be able to provide that survey in a timely manner. The other trick is they need to provide that affidavit, which means it has to be notarized within that same time frame. And a lot of agents don't know this and they don't think about it. Well, depending on how that contract is filled out, the buyer can force the seller to buy them a new survey. Just like you're talking, you know, there's, these things have meanings. So seller may say, okay, here's my survey. Everybody thinks it looks good. Buyer a couple weeks later is like, well, I didn't get that affidavit from you. And I want a new survey. I don't like this one. And they may be contractually entitled to do so. Then there's also all the items that can show up on a survey. That's good for a buyer's agent to know as well. You know, kind of a cliche is if you're a buyer's agent, you know what your client wants. And if they want to add a swimming pool, you need to know that because if that survey has a big utility easement running through the backyard and there's a gas line in there, you're probably not going to be able to put a pool in. So there are a lot of issues that go on on each transaction. We're all they're all so different. We try to find these big kind of common air ones that make the most sense so that people are on the lookout for what the what kind of things. Sometimes they need to know what you don't know. So one of the things that we added into our processes and procedures, or Laura's processes and procedures, is that at closing that the, the buyer, is, our buyer, is reviewing that survey and initialing that survey. And that comes from, I mean, a very good friend, very good client, and this was a large property purchase. And it became a little contentious with the seller and our buyer is what it is, right? But this was a 12-acre property with a large house on it. and But originally it was 14 acres, but 
the seller had carved out two acres, right? Replatted that. This thing was advertised on MLS with only 12 acres. The survey only showed 12 acres, but my buyer, who is great, he's a great dude, great, great dude, can't say enough great things about him, but man, when he, he's been a very successful businessman, and when he, when he gets his mindset on something, he gets his mindset on something, he had a mindset on, he really didn't care for the seller. And so he's searching around on Google, and because we know how accurate Zillow is, right? Right. Zillow's completely accurate with their estimates and everything else. Well, Zillow had it as a 14 acre property. So my buddy calls me and he's like, hey, this is supposed to be 14 acres. And I was like, I don't know anything about 14 acres. I only know about 12 acres. It's listed as 12 acres, blah, blah, blah. But what saved our bacon at the end of it, not that my buddy was going to come after us, but was that when we went and reviewed all the signed documents, he had initialed the survey, which only showed 12 acres. But it was really important because something, especially with technology, can trigger an event that if you don't have something that refutes that, it can potentially get very contentious very quickly, right? Right. And and so that's why I tell folks like surveys or like even in our house in Colorado, right? So we got four acre lot or neighbors four acre lot, and when we were. Getting the survey done, we had to get a new survey done, which, you know, I was like, okay. And they were like, oh, yeah, hey, by the way, they have a, a, they used to have llamas and they got a fence that is over your property line by a foot. And I was like, okay, well, just make sure it's on the survey that that's their fence on my property and that if I ever want it removed, it can be removed, right? Not that I care because it's down there on the side of the hill that. I'm not going to do anything down there except fall down. But it was but it was one of those things that it, it's important to know because lines can't – those lines on those surveys, I mean, depending on who the person is, an inch can matter to them, right? It can. So Texas is – well, case law and, and courts are adverse to adverse possession, they don't like it. So it's very difficult in Texas to adversely possess a piece of property. But you're absolutely right. You know, the fence can be a major issue. That can be the determining factor as to whether or not your neighbor has adversely possessed your property. So you're absolutely right. Those lines are, are very important. Yeah. And I remember when we were selling our house over by TCU and and I mean, look, this fence had been there since before the house was even bought. But what we found out is our neighbor was going to sell their house about the same time we were going to sell our house. And even though this, I mean, the, this fence was so old that it had grown into the trees or the trees had grown into it or whichever, right? Mm. But, you know, my neighbor comes over and is like, hey, I'm just kind of worried that this may be a point of contention. And I was like, well... I'm not going to lie to you. I wouldn't mind if you want to split the cost to get a new fence because this this thing sucks anyways. <laughs> but it was one of those things because this was before I was in real estate. This is when I was still with the PD. And Laura was like, yeah, let's actually make it right. So that way it didn't – because what we didn't want – and I mean, when I talk a couple of inches, I mean a couple of inches. But Laura had been doing this long enough, which was, hey, since we're both going to be selling our houses at the same time, we don't want – a particular type of buyer to make a big point out of this, which delays us which can from going and buying something, right? Because I, I think you guys would agree with me is that when it comes to 
when things get really contentious, it's never over anything big, right? It's always over something small and minute, right? Right. And, and, you know, because the big things are easy to solve. It just seems, right? For the most part, yeah. Well, for the most part. Yeah. Good lawyer response. <laughs> but the small problems usually aren't worth trying to bring lawyers into it, but you still have all that anger and entitlement that you feel, and you, you can't defend yourself, so that makes people probably feel even more pressure. There's always that person that wants to make a mountain out of a molehill. Yep. Yeah. And those are the ones. So what you're that, saying, that, that person that was born an asshole? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> those assholes keep yelling business. So yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, we're very, very rarely on mm-hmm. that individual side just because we'll just tell them we're not going to take the case. Yeah. But it's very frustrating when you're on the other side. Mm. And you know what the outcome is going to be, but you know it's going to cost a lot of time and a lot of money to get there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you guys. I mean, I mean, we could we could probably make a complete series out of, you know, just what you guys do, right? And I mean, because there's a lot of information that I believe that, I mean, I'm 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 not surprised by this anymore, but I'm still somewhat stunned by even our clients that have bought and sold a lot of real estate. How much of the things they don't know behind it that they should? I mean, that's why. I don't joke when I when I tell new clients coming in that my goal is for you to understand and know as much about real estate as we do, right? Now, whether you do at the end is up to you, but I want you to get educated through this whole process because if you're going to go buy and sell real estate continuing down the road, you know, it's important that you know all these things. Of course, I have other agents go, well, if they know what we know, they don't need us. I was like, guess what? They don't need us in the first place. <laughs> they could put a sign in the front yard that sells, says for sale by owner. I don't want people that need me. I want people to come to me because they trust me and they want me to represent their interests. Like I have one buddy of mine that he was giving me a hard time a couple months ago. He's like, hey, man, I'm always sending you business. And I said, man, and I really appreciate that. And he goes, well, I'm sending you business because I want you to make the money. And I says, as much as I really, really appreciate that, I said, I would rather you send me business because you want the people you're sending to have the most trusted team there is in this industry. While I appreciate you want me to get paid, it's more important that that's why you're sending folks to me, right? And that's what I like about you guys. It's like it's you're going because you have someone that's going to represent that interest, especially when there's so many components to real estate, right? I mean, it's just one or two things, right? Yeah. Yeah, just a couple. (laughs) And I think it's important to point out when when John and I are talking about contracts for you know this situation. We're just talking about the Trek one to four family residential contract. We're not talking about one off contracts that that we may draft for million dollar properties or anything like that. These are the promulgated forms that Trek provides, and we're not talking about commercial transactions because those are a whole different beast altogether. So I just think it's it's clear to everyone that that's what we're talking about. So when we're referencing certain provisions. You can go to that contract, you can find that provision, and you'll know exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. So. The proclamated forms? Is promulgated. That promulgated. Yeah, <laughs> eh, you know, I'm dyslexic. I can't pronounce anything with more than two syllables anyways. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, and, and that is important to also, you know, know and understand, especially in the commercial space, right? Because commercial space is still kind of like the wild, wild west. Yes. Right? Yeah. I mean, it is it's... like in a, in a promulgated form, it's – 
fill in the blanks because all the other legalese is already in there. But in a, you know, commercial deal, I mean, two words side by side can mean the difference of how something goes. Right. And right. that's a huge difference because when we get, if we get a deal in and if escrow team's working on closing it or somebody asks me a question about it, I may already have that language memorized in my head because I've been asked that question a hundred times. Or we know right to where to go and look at the contract. And if anything's changed, it's marked over. So you know what that contract says, you know how to look at it. A commercial deal or a builder contract, something that's off those standard forms, it could say anything. You have to read that thing word by word almost to really understand it because there can be things hidden in there that have, as you're talking earlier, have a lot of meaning that you're signing to. And it's very important, you know, somebody gets a non-standard contract that they do have somebody who understands it to look over that for them, to who's looking out for their interests. Right. That's like we were talking about those builder contracts earlier. And there are promulgated commercial forms. Texas Realtors, I yeah. believe, has a form that a lot of people do use. But there are, depending on the complexities of the transaction, a lot of them are custom drafted for the transaction or they deviate from the standard terms and the promulgated forms. Situations like that, you know, you really have to go through them with a fine tooth comb. And when an escrow officer gets something like that on their desk, some of the escrow officers are, are really good and they can go through and get a good idea. Uh, but we do spend a lot of time going through those and explaining provisions. And it's a little bit easier for us because on the titles side, we are in the office, so we can just walk down the hallway and say, this is what you need to do. Some of the larger title companies, they don't have in-office attorneys, so they need to call a third-party attorney or they try to call the in-house attorneys, and then they're just a number, yeah. right? There are so many other escrow officers ahead of them, it's going to take time. But in our situation, we just walk down the hall and, and explain it, and the transaction continues. So, so I'd be amiss if I didn't bring this up. So you guys went from being attorneys, working for other people, to making the jump, to hang your own shingle, become your own business. I mean, that was an easy transition, right? I mean, y'all are just working like uh, Tuesday to Thursday from like 10 to 2 now. I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, all this flowed easy, right? I mean, everybody's giving you money. You're not, you're not having to work that hard, right? <laughs> yeah, we're actually spending – we're in the Bahamas about half a year now, right? <laughs> <laughs> Is it your week for the jet next time? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so what was that like? Uh, that was a really fun transition because the law firm, we started, I believe, June 1st of 2020, mm -hmm. roughly. So right in the middle of the pandemic. Great timing, by the way. Oh, yeah. So that, that was great. <laughs> so that was a fun transition. And then, you know, middle of October, we decided to, to start the title company. So... There were a lot of moving parts. We were hiring staff. We were obtaining office space. We had to do a build out for our title space and, you know, run in two offices. And it was a lot, but we're starting to catch our stride. We've got some good staff. They're doing a great job for us. And they have the same mindset that we do. When we started both of these operations, our goal was to help people and to do the job the way that we knew it should be done. We weren't seeing a lot of that in the industry. We wanted to give every client as much attention as, as needed, and we wanted to be responsive. And our staff has the same mindset. So you're always going to get a call back. You can always get in touch with our staff if you have any questions. 
and they're really good about explaining things and making sure that the clients understand what's going on, which is what we want. So Absolutely. So what do you think that drive came from? Was it just experiencing, you know, working in other offices and you were like, man, I think this could be done better or why isn't this being done or, or what, what kind of gave you all that drive? Because like I, I tell folks often as like as an entrepreneur, you have two types of entrepreneurs. You got the entrepreneur spirit and entrepreneur courage. (laughs) Entrepreneur spirit is like, I would love to go be an entrepreneur, but I'm not going to go do it. And then you've got the entrepreneur courage. It's just like, Hey, I think I carry 80% of the bipolar traits is what any entrepreneur would have. So I'm crazy enough to go do this. And then you make that jump to go do it. What was, what was that ultimate push or drive or desire? And where does that come from for you guys? You, you, I think you know why, yeah. why, why we did it. I think we just saw a need in the industry yeah. for something like what we plan to offer. And it seemed like the right opportunity. The The way that the the law firm and everything was going with COVID had slowed down. And it seemed like a good time to jump off and, and get started on, on a new endeavor. And I knew for me, I sold a house right around that time. So I you had. Did? I did. Re- really? Yeah. I should have held on to it. This, I, sold it <laughs> I sold it in August. I should have held on to it a few more months. You're within a million dollars now. Yeah, yeah. So I sold a house. So I had I had some cash yeah. to drop and and to help get the endeavor started. So the the timing just worked out. Yeah, it was it's kind of one of those sayings of you know, and I've worked for so many different places and seen different things, and you know, I take the good and the bad of all of them, and you know, we're all imperfect humans trying to make our way in this world. So, you know, I try to learn from the good parts. I'm like, okay, I can, I can do that. I see that. I'm like, man, if that part were better, this would be a great thing. And I'm like, I can do that. And, you know, for some certain aspects of it that you get into, I think it's number one, how you, how you treat people, both, you know, people who work for you and people who are your clients. It's kind of in our, we have our motto, it kind of mirrors the golden rule that we want to, I don't have it memorized, but the gist of it is no matter if you're a small client, a large client, we treat you like we would want other people to take care of us because that's important to this industry. I jokingly earlier, you know, talk about I don't like lawyers. Well, you know, a lot of lawyers have a bad rap and that's because the bad ones make a lot of noise and people see that out there mm-hmm. and they don't like that in the community. I hope that people, you know, and we try hard, I'm sure we fail at times, but we try hard that our clients walked away from us. They're like, hey, that was a good experience. And, or maybe that wasn't a great experience overall, but my lawyer was helping me get through it. And they truly cared about me. They communicated with me. That's one of the biggest problems in this industry and around here is just, you can't get a hold of your attorney. Hmm. And I'm like, well, that's not hard. I know how to answer hmm. my phone. So, you know, we, we try to do that. We try to provide good service and really try to help overall. You know, it's that little bit. You do your small piece in the world to try to improve it and make it, it better. Isn't it funny if something is answering your phone? So, as you all know, the, the new person I added to my team, James Peterson, is he said, man, what do I need to do to truly be successful at this? And I said, look, man, I'm going to break down the science for you. You've been in insurance sales. I don't have to teach you how to sell. You already know how to sell. You already know how to do a lot of this stuff. But I said, if you really want to separate yourself from everybody else, 
answer your phone or return the call, right? And, and he's like, no, seriously. And I was like, answer your phone or return the call. And he's like, no, seriously. I was like, like I'm starting to sound like a broken record. Answer your phone and return the call. And he goes, it can't be that simple. I said, oh, no. Do you know how many agents don't return calls? Don't, don't, I mean, like never acknowledged or anything else. I mean, like I feel horrible when I miss something. But one, I always, I always know either someone found my number by accident or they, whatever happened. Like the other day I had a, someone is like, Hey, I'm calling about this property and blah, blah. And they, man, they called me on a day that I was getting murdered and that they called and left a message around one, but still at seven, I was like, Whoa, Oh my gosh. And so immediately I forwarded it to James and said, Hey, call this person right now. Right. But even then was still six hours later, a faster turnaround than what some of these folks just don't, don't do it. And I'm not just talking about like, Hey, you want to be their client. I'm talking about deals that I've worked where I'm sitting here. My client's like, Hey, what's going on here? And I'm like, I can't get the agent to return my call. I have called, I have emailed, I have texted, you know, I sent a singing stripper telegram, you know, whatever. <laughs> I cannot get a response out of these people. And and they're like, why would they not do that? And I'm like, I, I, I don't know how to explain this to you. It's just, just the way some of them are by design. But it is it is an actual, true, living situation. I think across maybe all industries, but I definitely see that in ours, where it's like, do you want to know why you only sold two houses in the last two years? Is because you don't know how to answer your phone. Right. right. Like, answer but your phone. <laughs> the similarities that we share with you guys and the agents out there who it's that we have people are looking for at us to represent them. We have a fiduciary duty to them. We do as attorneys when we're helping them. You do as agents. And, you know, a lot of this is the largest purchase an individual is making. It means a lot to them that. They're going to be spending $500,000. They'll never spend that again on anything else in their life, maybe. Mm-hmm. And something that you've done a thousand times as an agent or, you know, Joe agent has. But you always tell agents when I teach them, like, don't forget this. This single deal matters a lot to them. And it's the same thing on the legal side. These people are stressed out. They may be really scared or nervous, but we're not sleeping at night because they're worried about stuff. And if they're a lawyer who is the person they're kind of grabbing onto, to like, hey, help me get through this. And that's what we're there for. If we're not responsive to them, we're failing them. So yeah. you brought up a very important word that I want to make sure we touch on so that way the audience understands what this means. In the span group, we have two core values. The first core value is the value exchange. The client must trust us and want to work with us, and we must trust them and want to work with them. Because one side is lopsided, lopsided, you're in the convincing business, and everybody knows how I feel about the convincing business. Not there to be in it, don't want to be in it. So as long as we have that value exchange, that unlocks the second core value, which is your money will always be more important than our money, right? Which leads to that little word called fiduciary. So let, let the audience know, because I, I think a lot of people hear that word, and it's almost like a magical word that a lot of people I don't think really understand the true meaning of that. So let's hit on what fiduciary means for the audience out there. Well, fiduciary means, in essence, I think you boil it down to, you put your client's interests above above your own. And that sounds all great, but if there's so many times, you know, an attorney who sits there and gets that big retainer and runs up a bill and pads the bill really high, 
and then does it get any results even? That's a violation of a fiduciary duty in my mind. You know, an agent, I had this when I was up a title company. This is my example I use. This deal came in, the agent was part of a team. We tried to call the team to get answers from them. Probably no less than six or seven times I was working on this transaction trying to help and agent never returned the calls. One time I got his assistant, they said he called and never heard back from him. The whole time, I, we always had to go through the other party's agent. And it happened this person was a seller. So then, closing time comes in. We've had limited conversations with them. We've sent emails. We're still trying. Well, the seller shows up, except there's a married couple and only wife shows up. And we're like, where's your husband? And, you know, we sent this. We talked to your agent. We told, we passed some stuff. And she goes, well, my lender told me he didn't have to come. Well, first of all, she, I don't think, was able to get a hold of her agent to find that out. I don't know why she didn't come back to us, but Linda said he didn't have to sign. So we turned out husband was in a rig in Midland. And this was right around Christmas Eve, if I, it was Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve. And they had to get this thing done. We had to find a notary to in Midland to drive an hour out to a rig to go find husband to get him to sign. We barely got done by the skin of our teeth. Still never heard a word from the agent. Until the lender called me. Actually, it wasn't the lender even. I think the lender emailed me. Right when the lender emails me, the agent calls me. It says, hey, buddy, my lender friend said my check's ready. Can I come here and pick it up? And I was almost dumbfounded. And, of course, you know, you have to pause for a second. Someone say something I shouldn't say. (laughs) (laughs) It's... That alone, just the essence of he does not communicate, he doesn't help represent his client any time until he wants his check. Yep. And it just that's what can give agents a really bad name because that ended up damaging his client. And really, luckily, we were able to cover for them, which, you know, we're always happy to try to cover for normal mistakes. But that's, as I tell my kids, that's an unforced error. Mm-hmm. And that shouldn't have happened. Yeah. And, and I'll give two Two examples, one a past example and one a present example. A couple of years ago, I had a buddy of mine, Marine, buying a house a couple blocks from me, and there were some things that came up about the house. So naturally, I was doing, I mean, this is when I was involved more in the day-to-day, and not going to lie, when it comes to negotiations, I like to be a beast, right? I'm just, I, I'm high type A. I like to press, right? I want to get as much from my client as possible, even though it was a seller's market and he was the buyer. And uh, there was roof issue, major roof issue. And I was, I was pressing hard. And the agent calls me and she said, she calls me and she's crying. And she says, we have to make this deal work because I have to pay my rent. And I was floored by this. Like mm. I'm sitting there thinking, are you representing your interest or your client's interest, right? And, and I was just, it was just the, the surest of violation of fiduciaries could be. Then, even after we got everything agreed to, and now the roof is getting redone, she calls me, she calls Laura and I, sets up a conference call with Laura and I and her broker to say, we bullied her into getting her client to sign that deal. And I was like, really? So, so I, I made your client sign that? I was like, I'm pretty sure that you're the one that got your client to sign that amendment, not me. And then on top of that, I was like, 
So she's really, you know, you're the bully, you know, because we got this big bully thing going on, right? This right. Bully, 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 which don't get me wrong. There's some bullying out there and that's bad. But it, it really gets overplayed sometimes, I think. And she's sitting there, bully, bully, bully. You were being a bully. And I said, and I can't remember her name. Just that's how insignificant she was to me. Is She was pushing. And I said, you know, I would, I would seriously stop where you're at right now. And she goes, why? Are you going to try to be a bully again? And I was like, oh, hey, Mr. Broker, let me let me tell you about the conversation we had the other day when she was crying and saying, we got to get this deal closed because she needs to pay her rent. So is she representing your client or is she representing her? He goes, we'll call you back, click. Because, <laughs> I, mean, oh, I mean, but it was something as simple as that. It's like, hey, look, don't play this game with me when you really only care about your money. You really don't care about your client's money. And you didn't care about your client's money until your client was pissed off realizing what they signed because you had them sign that all for your own interest because we were prepared to walk away from this thing. So that was a prime example of fiduciary in my mindset. The other one is the current one, right? This is a large deal, right? And there's some escrow money on the table. And naturally, my clients are incredibly concerned that once we go to PSA, you know, or, or purchase sell agreement, remove from that, you know, LOI to PSA, that some of this is going to go hard, meaning that it's unrefundable, right? I mean, right. this is the buy, this is the seller's money, and 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 so going through it, this is a large enough deal where. My commission on this thing is about four times what the hard money is or what the initial request of the hard money was, right? Right. So um, it would seem that I would push them to do it because I need to get paid, right? Because this is all my money coming in, large check, blah, blah. You've got to pay your mortgage. I got to do it. Yeah, I got to pay my mortgage. <laughs> but And luckily, the, the person involved in this is also someone I'm very close with and known a long time, have a lot of trust with. And I said, look, man, let me tell you something. I will kill this thing before you kill this thing. I said, that is my job. I haven't become in the top 1% of producers because I worry about my money, right? And regardless of how sizable of a check that this is going to be coming to this fan group, I will murder this deal before anybody blinks an eye. If there is any, matter of fact, it was really funny. We had a meeting prior to meeting you guys over here. And uh, James was over last night and I said, all right, we're going to get on this dry race board and we're going to write down everything that could possibly go wrong with this deal once we own it, right? Once this thing is signed, sealed and delivered and we got the keys on it, what could go wrong? And he's like, okay. And man, we did. We wrote a slew of, I don't even know how many bullet points. It was more than 20. He's like, man, that's a lot of potential things that could go wrong. I said, cool. Let's have the computer starting. He goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm sending an email to the buyer on this. He goes, why are we doing that? And I was like, well, number one, they're probably already doing this anyways. But two, that is our fiduciary responsibility to tell them you're getting ready to write an abnormally large check for this portfolio of properties. And something you need to know before going into this is this is anything and everything that could possibly go wrong. And yeah, could they got that email and gone, yep, we're out? Absolutely. But I would rather them have that information on the front end then the thing gets signed, sealed, and delivered, and it's like, hey, what about X, Y, Z, right? It is my fiduciary responsibility for them to know as much the good news, the bad news, the ugly news, the every kind of news prior to them writing a sizable check for that. And that, it, to me, is, is the value that like what you guys offer to your clients, what we offer to our clients, is it has to be about the client's money. Going to your point earlier, whether it's a 
$200,000 house or a $200 million house. And everybody should get the same level of service no matter what the price point is, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited for you guys. You know, you, 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 you jumped out there and did it, right? You started your own business. And that's, it, you know, I, I, it's something that a friend of mine, Chris Powers, it said, if you're ever in business and you haven't been terrified, you're just lying to everybody, right? Because there's times, I mean, how many times have you woke up in the middle of the night like, <gasps> we got payroll. <laughs> it still happens. It's uh, not necessarily about payroll, but just yeah. how much is on my plate, you know, for the coming week or, or the next day. I still wake up in the middle of the night and my brain's just going 100 miles an hour. And I know that the same probably happens to John because John's got three boys. So on top of the two companies, he's got a whole lot of stuff going on at home as well. <laughs> yeah. So I have no problem falling asleep, but I may wake up at three and I'll get back to sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think you're actually one of the few people because people have told me, they were like, hey, the rest of the free world doesn't wake up at 4 a.m. like you do. Stop texting me at 4 a.m. And I was kind of, you know, whenever, because I just, I'm so ADD. I get something out and I'm like, hey, I'm just going to send this before I forget it. Yeah. You're actually one of the few people that every once in a while I was like, hey, dude, you know what time it is, right? And I'm like, Oh, hey, you're up, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thinking about how we're going to solve this problem today. (laughs) Hell, you're even an hour behind us half the time. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) I know that mountain time up there in Colorado. So, well, guys, I tell you is, I'm not exaggerating, is we could do an entire series on what you guys could do to educate the the, the audience out there on what they need to know about buying and selling real estate, whether it's from a legal perspective or under from a title perspective, but more so than rather doing a big series is I would just encourage that any of the listeners out there just reach out to you guys. And, uh, and we're going to cover, you know, how to get hold of you. But I, I end cap every one of these by, by saying, let's go back to 20 year old self which was like last week for Wayne. He still, looks, yeah. still, still looks young, right? <laughs> still looks young. Like, I don't know, man. Is it is it the hair club for men? Uh, what is, what is I'm doing? starting to see some gray hair in the beard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, I, a, there's about four in there. There's about four in there. But, but no, um, not that 20-year-old self would listen. But if we could go back and turn the hands of time and we knew that 20-year-old self was li- willing to listen to one piece of advice to either do or not do something, John, what would you go back and tell 20-year-old self, knowing what you know now and all your years of wisdom? It's such a hard question, and I don't answer it well. I jokingly, I was thinking about this, and I jokingly know that I um, always tease my wife. I'm like, man, I wish I met you earlier. And she looks at me very smartly and says, we would have liked each other. And I'm like, oh, good point. And she goes, <laughs> we met at the right time. And I'm like, I think about my life experiences. I think about some of the mistakes that I made when I was younger. I didn't finished college when I was younger, I kind of screwed around. And then I had, when I decided I want to go to law school, I had to go back and finish. But during that other time, I gained a lot of experiences and I grew a lot doing other things. So if I had gone the traditional route back then, I wouldn't be sitting here today. I don't know where, I might be governor of Florida. I might be in a dumpster. I don't know. But I, I, I don't have regrets overall. I just say, I would tell myself, I think the one thing, and I'm not sure when I learned it, it's probably closer to 30. I wish I'd learned a little younger. I wish I learned it at 10. It's kind of just slow down and take in and enjoy. And, you know, life goes by so quick. It's such a precious gift every day on this earth that we all get. And, you know, just learn to take it all in, the good and the bad. Learn from your mistakes. 
rejoice in the rewards. Wayne? I would just tell 20-year-old me to stay the course and not get discouraged. It was tough. I mean, it's still tough. But I think things are, are going well. I think John and I are doing good, and, and I think we're helping people. So I know. can I can help you answer that. You don't have to think. You are doing it. Oh, you know, well, we seriously. appreciate it. Y'all, y'all, y'all are doing – man, I, I have no higher level of confidence than when somebody calls me and needs, you know, some professional help outside my skill set is to go, this is who you need to call. And you guys have been – the business methodology y'all wanted to have was being responsive, right? And y'all deliver hands down. And, I mean, I can't tell you how many clients have just been like, man, these guys are great and easy to talk to, right? Like, y'all don't y'all don't talk lawyerese to people and complicate and, like, use big – I mean, it's not hard to use big words around me and confuse me, right? But but y'all are just very down-to-earth, very well-spoken. You, you create a path of clarity for folks that – I'm not just telling y'all that because I'm here to tell you that that's what the clients are telling us after they have engaged with you guys. Well, we appreciate that. It's it's good to know that that we're doing it right and that our you know, our goal is is coming to fruition. So. Yeah. Yes, thank you very much for that. Yeah, absolutely. So People want to learn more about Buyers and Taylor and Allegiance Title. Where do they go? How do they find you? What are they, you know, what's the So our uh, website is in the works. We have a temporary website up now. It's uh, buyerstaylor.com. And by the end of the month, we should have our new website up. It will have quite a bit of information. They'll be able to toggle between the law firm and the title company. So they'll be able to learn a little bit about the staff on both and a little bit more about us and, and the everything that we have to offer as far as services and whatnot. But that's buyerstaylor.com. Why? Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, it's B-Y-E-R-S-T-A-Y-L-O-R.com. Okay. And emails, and we're going to have all this on the website too. So emails, is that the best way to, to reach e- out to you Email guys? or call. Yeah. So yeah. our emails are, are pretty easy. Mine is going to be wtaylor at buyerstaylor.com. And I'm jbyers at buyerstaylor.com. Okay. I just got to ask one question though. Is Was it a coin toss to see whose name came first? I, I didn't really put up a fight. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We had. <laughs> I was hoping you're going to ask this because I forgot. I was thinking about it over weekend. But what happened actually? Because we were kind of back and forth, and honestly, neither of us were pushing heavy. What happened is there's a there's just some people out there who are relatively famous. I don't who are named Taylor Byers. So, and I think that website may have been taken. And then if you Google Taylor Byers, other things come up. And I'm like, well, that's kind of messes us up a little bit. It was, it was a toss-up between Byers and Taylor and John Wayne. <laughs> so, we thought there might be some copyright or trademark issues if we had gone the John Wayne route. Oh, so. I am totally coining y'all's J-Dub. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if for anybody out there missing it, you can always go to our website, myexperiencedrealtor.com. That's myexperiencedwithanED.com. 
Click on the John and Wayne Show. Read more. You'll be able to find all this information, how to connect with them. And and absolutely, you need someone that's, that's going to give you some professional advice. These guys, I absolutely trust. I refer clients to them all the time. And then, as always, if you're looking to buy and sell real estate anywhere on the planet, just go to our homepage, click that home button, and click on trust. find a trusted professional, and we will get you connected to somebody that will take care of you just as much. Gentlemen, thank you for coming.